It all happened on a day, that joyful Christmas day planned in eternity by God the Father and declared by angels as this day which Christ the Saviour would be born. On this day, at the perfect fullness of time in the prophesied city of Bethlehem, a promised Saviour was born to a perishing world. Jesus' birth shook an unassuming silent night into a spectacular night. So it was that in the manger lay the infant, Jesus Christ, God's treasured promise revealed in the glory of Christmas. Good morning and an ongoing Merry Christmas to you. It's good to see you this morning. We are a people of faith. When we come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, we do so by, by turning from our sin. That is, that is repentance. But the other side of that coin is, is faith. No one will come to Christ to follow Christ if, if, if in doing so you don't believe that he knows what he's doing. That you don't believe that, that there, is, there is a Lord there that ought to be followed. Repentance and faith thus sides of the same coin. And while our relationship with God is, is very much resting upon and driven by our faith, unlike all of the world's other purported systems for being, for being eternally okay, the Christian faith rests on a foundation of fact. You can, you can try the Christian faith in front of philosophy, and it stands up. History, and it stands up. Archaeology, it stands up. The Word of God stands up to biology and geology. The Word of God stands up. The Christian faith stands up. And, of course, the, the great central apologetic of the Christian faith is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Of all of the important figures of history, of all of the grandiose claims made by influential people down the ages. Jesus Christ alone died and did not remain dead for the sake of his people. Second great apologetic of our faith is the wonder of fulfilled prophecy. And I wanna, I wanna talk about that this morning before we even get to our main passage. Sometimes in sermon planning. I know you all aren't going to believe this because you all are generally pretty kind to me. But I sometimes get beaten up in our sermon planning meetings because among all the members of our preaching team, it is I who will use two-thirds of my available time in an introduction. <laughs> I am the master of the protracted introduction. So what I did this morning to sort of, to sort of cheat that, I just took my introduction and made it Roman numeral one. You know, we'll see if that works. Roman numeral one, the confidence of Christmas. Fulfilled prophecy causes us to, to have to, 
to, to either have to deal with or, or rest comfortably in the fact that Christmas simply could not have happened the way it happened. There were, <laughs> there were too many miracles. Either Christmas is a fantastic miracle of, of fulfilled prophecy and God moving in amazing ways or you're not rational. Now we've said it before, and if you're here this morning and you're an unbeliever, first, we're glad you're here. We care about you. We have you on our hearts. We have you in our prayers. But we would challenge you to consider my unbelieving friend that if you've not followed Christ because of what you have imagined to be insurmountable intellectual difficulties, I would gently challenge you to hold your intellectual doubts up to the light. And I would challenge you to consider that the word of God says that this is condemnation. The light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Friend, your problem is not insurmountable intellectual difficulties. Your problem is you love your sin. And your love for your sin, those, those conducts, those attitudes, those habits that you know are not pleasing to the God who created you, your love for your sin and your deadly embrace of that love is going to cost you eternity. For those of us who know and love Jesus, here are some reasons for confidence and specifically fulfilled prophecies that are the confidence of Christmas. This is by no means all of them, but a few of them that are strategic as we consider Christmas time. Letter A, the first messianic prophecy in scripture. The first time we, we hear of a coming savior is in Genesis 3.15. The, the beginning of sin has just happened. The fall into sin in the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve partook of a fruit that had been forbidden and plunged in their so doing all of creation including the race of which Adam was the head. Romans 5, as in Adam all die. We came into condemnation as the descendants of Adam. Just condemnation. But in the very wake of that, God pronouncing a curse on the devil makes the statement in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman. That is, I'm going to create a tension coming out of a human woman between your offspring and her offspring. There's coming one out of a woman who will bruise your head though you and you shall bruise his heel. There's one coming who will take a serious blow from you. But in return, he will utterly crush you. When you crush a serpent's head, that serpent is well and truly done for. This promise in Genesis 3.15 ties the redemption of all of the universe, including most specifically God's people, to a human being who will come from a woman. That is the, now, 
omniscience and omnipotence have options. But here God, God reveals in the broadest scope there's coming a human being who will be the savior. Out of all creation, one race, the race of humanity. Fast forwarding to, to Genesis 12, letter B. There, um, after the Tower of Babel, we dealt with this earlier this year when we went from Genesis 1 to, through Genesis 11. After the first of the year, we are going to pick up the story in Genesis 12, and this is the very passage where we'll be on the first Sunday of the new year. In this passage, which is known to, to Bible students as the Abrahamic Covenant, God shows up without precedent and without any justification other than his own will in the life of Abraham and issues to Abraham an astonishing unilateral covenant. The Lord said to Abram, I'm in Genesis chapter one, I'm coming to verse three, hang on. Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse one. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. This, of course, this Abrahamic covenant is the, is the spring, the origin spring of the, of the nation of Israel as God's historic chosen people. Israel, a nation in which our faith has deep roots. Israel, a nation for which we are praying. Israel, a nation today, obviously in great turmoil, great struggle, even warfare. So we pray for Israel and we acknowledge Israel as God's historic chosen people. But God went on to say, Genesis 12, three, the heart of the matter for us this morning. I will bless those that bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. Here it comes. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Out of all of the, the, the realm of mankind, the nation that will arise from Abraham's descendants, will that out of that nation will come one who will be a blessing for all nations. So God is, is narrowing the scope from all of his creation, mankind, from all of mankind, the descendants of Abraham. Letter C, out of all of Israel, one tribe. Time passes through the book of Genesis. And ultimately, the, the, the sons of, of Jacob become the, the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. In one case, it's, it's grandsons, but generally. And among the sons of Jacob and the tribes of Israel, Judah, who is not the oldest, but Judah is given in Genesis 49, verse 10, this specific promise of the tribe of Judah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. That is, the legitimate reign of the king of the people of Israel will be centered in the tribe of Judah. The, there were only three kings so far of, of the united nation of Israel. 
during the reign of the kings. And, and, and some of you who are, who are strong Bible students will know the answer to this. Was the first king of Israel from the tribe of Judah? No, he was not. He was Saul from the tribe of Benjamin. By the way, in the New Testament, we also have a Saul from the tribe of Benjamin, don't we? Uh, the Apostle Paul. Saul of Tarsus was born Saul from the tribe of Benjamin. You think his parents had big hopes for him when he was born? But the first king of Israel, I, I would maintain, and I believe, I believe that study bears this out, the first king of Israel is not a blessing from God to his nation. He was a judgment. His people, Israel, got impatient with God's unfolding plan and said, we want a king just like the pagan nations that surround us have. God said, be careful what you ask for. And they said, no, we want a king like the pagan nations around us have. And God said, okay. And that was King Saul from the tribe of Benjamin. But when the king who was a man after God's own heart arose, King David from the tribe of Judah. The, the throne of David on which Messiah sits is a, is a fulfillment of this prophecy. As from all mankind, from all the universe, mankind. From all mankind, the nation of Abraham's descendants, Israel. From all Israel, one tribe, Judah. Out of all of Judah, one family. Of the various verses I could have chosen, Isaiah 9, verse 7, speaking of the coming Messiah, prophesies of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I have a good bit more to say about Isaiah 9 on Christmas Eve morning. It's my favorite Christmas passage in the Word of God, and I can't wait to open it with you on the morning of Christmas Eve. But for now, do you see what God is doing? Out of all the universe, mankind. Out of all mankind, the descendants of Abraham. Out of all the descendants of Abraham, the tribe of Judah. Out of all the tribe of Judah, the family line of David. And then one of the most quiet but most remarkable of all. <laughs> A little background. If you, if you ever take the time to put the genealogy of Christ from the book of Matthew chapter 1 and the genealogy of Christ from the book of Luke chapter 3 side by side you'll find that though they overlap significantly in fact from Abraham down to David they're the same but after David they diverge Matthew takes his genealogy after David down through David's son Solomon Luke takes his genealogy after David down through David's son, Nathan. Not Nathan the prophet, but probably named after Nathan the prophet. Both Solomon and Nathan are sons of David and Bathsheba. But the, the, the genealogies diverge. A quick explanation for that is that in Matthew, we have the legal royal 
lineage of Jesus coming down through Joseph. However, that doesn't fulfill prophecy because Jesus is not biologically related to Joseph. He's legally related to Joseph, but not biologically. The Luke genealogy comes down through Mary and establishes that Jesus is biologically the fulfillment of all the prophecies made about him. Now, the fascinating thing about both those geologies, though they diverge after David, they cross again one more time. Probably at a name you've not thought about today, probably no one in here has been named or has named their child Zerubbabel. As far as I'm aware, I've, I've known some Davids. I've known some Nathans. I even once knew a Solomon. I ain't met any Zerubbabels. It is the last person in the Old Testament who is promised that Messiah will descend through him. So as we diverge after David through Solomon and Nathan and the family lines progress, they come together again and touch at Zerubbabel before they finally diverge to their end game at Joseph and Mary. Haggai 2.23 Out of all of David's descendants, one specific branch on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. That is a sign of reigning, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. It is a messianic prophecy of Messiah's reign descending through Zerubbabel the last overlap of the genealogies and the last specific messianic prophecy of the Old Testament. Hebrews chapter 10. That about right. About half my time gone and my introduction is done. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse five. Turn with me there if you will. The author of the book of Hebrews, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me in burnt offerings and sin offerings. You have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And when he said, You have... When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. This, if I may, is the confrontation of Christmas. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a basis for celebration. I have been blessed to have been at, at every presentation of our Savior for all, from, from dress rehearsal night, and I'll be here this afternoon. And, and I love the fact that there, there runs a vein through the story, particularly the story of Christmas, there runs a vein of celebration. 
Oh, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of angst and a lot of anxiety. When a young woman turns up pregnant having never been with a man, that'll raise your anxiety meter a bit. But you, you get to the angels and the shepherds. You get to the coming of the magi out of the east. There's much to, oh, by the way, spoiler alert if you've not seen the thing. I bet you knew those pieces would be there though, right? <laughs> There's a lot of celebration around the birth of Jesus, and that's a good thing. Our Christmas traditions here in the 21st century are characterized by a lot of celebration. We, we, we put up lights, and we, we exchange gifts, and we, we reminisce, and we overeat, and we, we celebrate, and celebration fits Christmas. Christmas also is a time of invitation. Come to Bethlehem and see, or specifically go to Bethlehem and see, the angels told the shepherds. The, the Magi, based in Persia probably, saw an astrological sign given by God, probably aligning with teaching that Daniel had given them as Daniel was once the head of the Magi order during his time in Babylon. They saw something that Daniel had told them to look for, an invitation, and they came. Christmas time for you is an invitation. Will you come to Jesus? Will you turn from your sin and trust Jesus Christ by faith? His earthly story begins in the manger at Bethlehem and continues through to the cross where he died for the sins of his people to the empty tomb where he proved by his resurrection that everything he had said regarding himself was true. Oh, the invitation of Christmas. But don't think this is an invitation like, a, like an RSVP to a Christmas party where if you've got a conflict, you can simply say, wow, I wish I could be there, but I can't. You can, you can turn down some invitations without much consequence. But the invitation of Christmas is also the confrontation of Christmas. Jesus Christ has come, and you are confronted in your sin by the reality of the Savior. Yes, you are invited, but you must respond to this invitation. This is the only name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And your conduct, as I say on the outline there, even your sacrificial conduct cannot suffice to make things right between you and God. Your obedience will never be enough. The, the Jewish law sacrificial system is the only code of conduct God himself ever prescribed. And that was not adequate. So whatever you've come up with to be good enough to be right with God won't work. It just won't work. Come to Jesus. Letter A, he came personally. When Christ came into the world, says verse five, Christ is a title. It's the equivalent of the Old Testament Messiah, the one who would build the bridge between a sinful world and a holy God. He did not delegate coming to live among us, die for us, and be raised to prove the whole thing. He came himself. He came personally. Letter B, he came pleasingly. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. 
In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. The sacrificial system was designed to instruct the people of God that God would require a sacrifice. It was designed to anchor them to the truth of the coming sacrificial savior. They missed the point entirely. And even by the time, this, this is quoting Psalm uh, 40, verses six through eight. Even by the time of Psalm 40, uh, Israel had taken the sacrificial system, which was meant to be an instructive object lesson, and they had turned the sacrificial system and wrote obedience to that system into a substitute for holy living, into a substitute for trusting their Lord by faith, into a substitute for actually turning from their sin. The only means whereby anybody was ever saved from the Garden of Eden forward is repentance and faith. There are not multiple plans of salvation in place. The law never saved anybody. The law, however, was meant to instruct Israel, look for a sacrificial savior. And by the time of Psalm 40, a thousand years before Christ, let alone by the time of Christ, people had substituted, wrote ritualistic obedience to a set of religious check marks and claimed that was enough to know God. And in their rote obedience to a set of religious check marks, God took no pleasure. But Jesus came to open the way to God by repentance and faith in satisfaction of Old Testament anticipation. Now New Testament fulfillment. He came pleasingly. He and he alone satisfies the just demands of a holy God. He came prophetically. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written in me, uh, written of me in the scroll of the book. I've already given you those prophecies that point down to just Christmas. There are a couple of major ones I didn't even touch on. I'll just touch them briefly now. A particular city. Bethlehem was no place special. Bethlehem was an agricultural community. The name Bethlehem means house of bread. It was a farming town and not much of one at that, an outer ring suburb of Jerusalem and a place of no particular notoriety. And yet Micah 5.2 says the Messiah will be born there. And he was. Further, Isaiah 7.14 says he will be born of a virgin. You and I and Isaiah and the people around Bethlehem and the people around Nazareth where the pregnancy first became public. We all know that can't happen. We also know it did. There are no odds for a virgin birth. The odds of a virgin birth are zero. And one happened. He came prophetically. And again, if you think you have rational objections to the truth claims of Jesus Christ, your judgment is being clouded by your love of your sin and you are invited to repent. You are commanded to repent and come to Jesus. And if you are a follower of Christ, you ought be so confidently. Though your faith is a faith, it stands firmly on a foundation of fact. He came prophetically. Letter D, he came preemptively. Verses 8 and 9, he has set aside the ceremonial law. It is now meaningless. 
In fact, within just a few years of his crucifixion and resurrection there in Jerusalem, uh, in sometime in the early AD 30s, at AD 70, the city of Jerusalem, in fact, basically the nation of Israel, was scraped off the map in a civil uprising against the Roman Empire that didn't go well. And that was that for Jerusalem until after World War II. The, the sacrificial system is no more and need be no more because the sacrifice has been paid preemptively in the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, Jesus Christ. Came preemptively. Letter E, he came purposefully. He came purposefully. Verse 10, what a marvelous verse. And by that will, that is the will of a holy God who extended himself to save. Jesus who came to seek and save the lost. By that will, we have been sanctified. That is, we have been declared separated to God, for God, by God. Through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. I'm in the book of Hebrews. You were to flip back to Hebrews chapter two near the top of the chapter, you would hear this question. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? You won't, you won't. Child of God, celebrate Christmas with confidence. This is the best news ever given to mankind that unto us is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. And oh, if you are outside of Christ, you know, the best time to come to Jesus is today. Tomorrow's gone. It's in the shredder and there's nothing you can do about it. Pardon me, yesterday. Wow. Yesterday, gone. Tomorrow, it is sheer presumption on your behalf to bet your eternity on what you're going to do tomorrow. I cannot tell you the times. I've been, I've been associated with the church. Mark earlier said, for him it's 24 years. For me, it's, it's, it's more than 20. How many times have we been in this place on a Sunday morning and by about Friday or Saturday, we've done the funeral for somebody who sat here as a worshiper just on the Lord's day. By the next Lord's day, we've done a very unexpected funeral service because somebody didn't make it to much of tomorrow. Now I'm not a sensationalist and I'm not trying to make you afraid of anything, but it's my job to make you aware of reality. And you can't get saved yesterday if you haven't already. And you dare not procrastinate so weighty a matter onto a tomorrow of which you have no guarantee. Come to Jesus today if you never have. Turn from your sin. Trust him by faith.